New England is easy to romanticize. On the surface, it's all red and orange leaves and ski trip weekends, flannel blankets and beach sunrises, huddling around warm hearths, waiting out winter storms, sailboats, big houses, bay windows, ball games by day, crickets at night, family, friendship, fishermen in yellow slickers, lighthouses, lobster, loons on glass lakes, glasses half full of good beer or expensive Chardonnay and sure, maybe that's life on the coast from Cape Cod to Casco Bay but those rules are conditional. The rest of New England is terminal. No, void, duct tape bar stools, blue colors, divorce, gossip, medication, tradition, breathalyzer tests, and reciting the alphabet in reverse. Accidents, opiates, funerals with low attendance, ground so cold you have to wait for spring. Red skies at morning, the tonic of wilderness, choppy waves, shipwreck, debris. A sign hanging in the kitchen that reads, family is the anchor that holds you down. Tourists, tourists, I hate these damn tourists. An apple orchard barren, foliage like fire, seaside town surrounded by flames. You can't help but watch it burn. Now, I could tell you all about how pretty North Shore Medical Center looked on the morning of October 27th. How the hospital courtyards autumn leaves clinging to gnarled branches, turning gently in the breeze. How a canopy of curdled clouds drifted overhead, pink with the first inklings of a blood-red sunrise. I could describe the rooftop of the hospital parking garage, how the cars were dusted white with snow, or a hundred other platitudes about autumn in Massachusetts. But that would only be a distraction from the truth. And the truth is this. New England is a moon, a dreamy destination with a dark side that it never shows to visitors. And the truth is like the moon, eventually. It always comes out. Always. 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 Thursday, October 27th. The truth is also this. On October 27th, the hospital was packed with dour people. Their morning was anything but beautiful. Doctors were underslept, visitors were pacing, patients were dying. And yes, of course, above the autumn leaves, below the canopy of pink clouds, on the parking garage rooftop, the cars were dusted white with snow. John Herman's beat-up blue Jeep with wood panel siding was among them. But his car was also covered in bird droppings. Seagulls were on the hood, squawking, talking shit. John shooed them away and climbed behind the wheel. He was pleasantly surprised to find his wife, Eve, waiting in the passenger seat, yawning, stretching her arms out at the dashboard. He kissed her on the cheek. Careful, I got dragon breath. Been out here all night? Yeah. Sorry, I must look like death. John buckled in. He could feel her staring, gazing lovingly at him. And even now, after all their years together, he blushed. What? Um, you look like shit is all. <laughs> Should have seen the other guy. He looked in the rear view. He removed his ratty Red Sox hat and ran a hand through his hair. It had been months since his last trim, but if he brushed it back and combed a clean part, John could pass for new money. A bohemian yuppie. Salem was full of them lately. John's hair was still thick. Brown, no grays, but the same could not be said of his beard. Patchy, silver, somewhere between mountain man and raving mad derelict. He didn't care. John Herman had no one to impress anymore. He turned the key. The engine cleared its throat. The Jeep headed out of the parking garage.
North Shore Medical Center was built like mansions on a cul-de-sac. Big brick buildings fit to fix any kind of sick. The only way in or out was a rotary road which circled the courtyard, flush with flower beds, concrete benches, beech trees, and a water fountain filled with dead leaves and dying wishes. All right, are you gonna tell me how it went or what? Eh, it didn't, I couldn't sleep. Oh no. All those wires, and there was a camera in the room. I mean, who can sleep like that? She reached across the cabin to scratch the back of John's head. He must be exhausted. He was. The truth is, John hadn't slept in almost a month. Not since his accident. He got a nasty concussion on duty. He was responding to a 911 call at a fancy new apartment building downtown. A command line of daughters had cordoned off the emergency exit door, and behind them, the victim screamed bloody murder. The dispatcher said the victim was a tenant of the building, that he had fallen down the stairs on his way to the basement, that he thought he had a severe leg injury, that he could feel his shin bone sticking through his skin, but couldn't confirm it visually, that he couldn't see anything at all, that the bleach he was carrying when he fell had ended up in his eyes. And the victim told the dispatcher that it was laundry day. John could no longer stand the screaming. He drew his hot shot and ran full force into the command line of daughters. Next thing he knew he was on his back, staring up at the sky watching his partner Red run smelling salts under his nose. John's medic helmet absorbed most of the impact, but his brain shook violently during the fall. Hard enough to reboot, hard enough to damage his random access memory. John hasn't so much as yawned since, not even last night during his sleep study. And, ironically, no part of the neurology department seemed like it had been designed to cultivate sleep in the first place. The sleep study quarters had all the trimmings of a cheap motel room, lumpy mattress, scratchy sheets, dated golden floor lamps with yellow tinged shades, and cigarette burns in the carpet from a time when nowhere was off limits for a smoker. So John just closed his eyes and pretended all night. So he didn't sleep, but so what? None of that mattered now that Eve was here to lick his wounds. You must be exhausted. I'm okay. He said, pressing his head back against her fingernails. It had been a long while since she got him there. Highland Station was the last building on the roundabout. Some of John's co-workers were out front. Paramedics, shooting the shit with police officers, smoking with the firefighters, no doubt complaining about the job, or weather, or tourists overcrowding the bars, the roads, the hospital as they always did during the last week of October. John honked the horn and waved as he passed. And so did Eve. Suckers. Suckers. Womp womp. Bet you're glad to have a day off of me, huh? Huh? Time to tell. Of course it would. It always does. Always. Always. Salem was no longer the town John knew as a kid. If he had left and just returned, he'd say he hardly recognized it at all. Jefferson Avenue used to be a long stretch of abandoned factories and stout cinder block buildings, packaged stores, moving van rentals, auto shops, and the like. Now it's cafes, or rock climbing gyms, craft breweries, and yoga studios. Ever since the town announced it had been chosen as the next location for a flora plant, wealthy out-of-towners started snatching up the property. 
The previous eight flora plants had revived eight other ghost towns, defibrillated them back into living, breathing cities. And soon, Flora Plant 9 would get Salem's heart to start beating again, too. Import data, source URL, webmedia.org, slash, F-L-O-R-A, downloading. Created by President Joanna Wolfe as part of her Fresh Life Oxygen Rehabilitation Act, Flora plants are industrial facilities comprised of turbines and sprawling greenhouses. The air generated in the greenhouses is recycled and pumped into the atmosphere, thus, providing a natural way to remove volatile, airborne pollutants. Currently, eight flora plants are operational, and a ninth is under construction on Salem Neck in Salem, Massachusetts. Download complete. The Jeep passed a new condo building, luxury living with a hip rustic bar on the ground floor. Eve pointed out her window. Brooming cauldron. When did that go up, I wonder? Couple weeks back. John focused on the road. He saw the building's construction every day on his routes and didn't need to look now that it was complete. Hmm. Looks cute. You been yet? No. You don't have to drink to enjoy the atmosphere. Christ, you still go to mothers all the goddamn time. Only place I can catch Mike. Mikey. How is Mikey? Uh, he's Mike. Well, I'll have to tell him I said hi. He wouldn't. John couldn't tell Mike or anyone else that he was driving around with Eve. The whole town would say he's crazy. Batshit. That's what his daughter Azzy called him during one of their recent screaming matches. John couldn't remember the specifics of the argument. They all blended together these days. But he remembered Azzy saying, Batshit. She said that he was a bad dad. Losing his mind. Falling into a state of early onset dementia. She said his lack of sleep was detaching him from reality. That he needed a shrink or pills or God knows what else. Maybe she was speaking out of anger, the annihilatory kind only a 17-year-old girl can muster. But as he wasn't wrong, John's insomnia was ruining his life. He knew that one sleep study wouldn't fix him, but it might prove to his daughter that he was trying to be a good dad. And he was trying. But as he didn't seem to care, snowflakes were gathering on the windshield. John flipped on the wipers. <laughs> You think maybe I should just lie to her? Oh, no. Tell her I slept like a baby? Don't lie to our daughter, John Herman. That'll only make things worse between you. At a red light, he looked in the rear view again. He stretched the wrinkles at the corner of his eye and let them snap back into place. Eve was right. He looked like shit. I'm not bad shit. I know that. But as he doesn't... Give her time. The light turned green. Washington Street became Lafayette Street. John stared at the old firehouse as they passed. After Salem Fire and Rescue moved to Highland Station, the Lafayette Street Firehouse became a command terminal for all daughters living on the North Shore. Import data, source URL, webmedia.org, slash, command terminal, downloading. A command terminal, also known as a DOD station, or a DOD hall, is a government-sanctioned building designed to support members of DotPop. Full-time command terminals contain living quarters and work areas. Many daughters prefer to spend their free time at their regional command terminal. Multiple studies show that command prompts are mentally taxing, not only for daughters, but also for their family. 90% of all dot pop households report that command terminals are disturbing, especially for those with children in the home. Command terminals provide a 24-7 safe haven for daughters on duty to live, work, and rest. Download complete. The old firehouse was quiet, dark, dark, dark ominous, dark. even in the morning light. 
It was painted all black, from Belfry to Baydor, towering over Lafayette Street like a haunted schoolhouse. Everything surrounding it was shiny, new and yet somehow more bleak. The Hermans were no strangers to the old firehouse on Lafayette Street. Because, once upon a time, Eve was a daughter. She nudged him with her elbow. Wanna stop by? Maybe to throw rocks through the windows. Now there's an idea. <clears throat> what do I say? I don't think you have to say anything. Just throw a rock and run. No, to Azzy. Oh. How do I make her stop hating my goddamn guts? She doesn't. Says she does. Says it all the time. Eve reached over and scratched John's favorite itch again. You seem to forget. She's a teenager. Kids don't mean half of what comes out of their mouths. They will just say they hate our guts, and well, we just have to take it. Easy for you to say. She never hated her guts. No. Of course not. I'm her mother. Okay, sure. Not exactly the advice I was looking for. Oh, all of a sudden you want my advice. Uh-huh. Okay. Let Azzy enjoy being a kid. This time next year she'll be off to school, and then that'll be that. Give her some space. Space? Space. Make her miss you a little, you know? Make her want to come home for Christmas. For Christ's sakes, she hasn't even gotten into a school yet, and you're talking about missing Christmas. I don't even want to think about it. You have to think about it sometime. Her leaving is inevitable. Flurries fell faster. It was really coming down now. John turned up the wires. Used to be easier, huh? Sometimes I wish she could have just stayed little forever. Eve made a face like she just drank expired milk. <laughs> you hated being a toddler's father. Her subtle New England accent reared its head when she laughed. Ours become Oz. <laughs> I wish she stayed little. You're a funny guy, John Herman. But John remembered it differently. Because parenting is a perpetual state of grief. Incurable nostalgia for the kid you had yesterday. A constant knowing that you'll never see that person again. The days in which John and Azzy got along were long gone, and they were never easy. But, from what I understand of human parenting, everything sparkles in hindsight. John turned onto Summit Avenue. He parked along the curb in front of his house. An asymmetrical two-story Queen Anne with a turret in one corner, and a witch's head on top. The window beneath it was Azzy's room. John stared at it dreadfully. He could see her through the sheer red curtains, darting around, getting ready for school. There was a time when he was her alarm clock, her chauffeur, her head chef, and biggest fan. She couldn't function without him. But these days, Azzy didn't seem to need John for much. Just talk to her. Let's say. Sorry for being so overbearing. Tell her you're going to loosen up, but you have to mean it, OK? This kid can smell bullshit from a mile away. <laughs> she gets that from you. A skill I developed shortly after meeting you. OK, cool. Then what? I, I don't know. You're overthinking it. This ain't rocket surgery. Just show her that you're trying to be a good dad. I am trying. Then try harder. By doing less? Yeah. <laughs> Your advice sucks. It's tough love, partner. You need it or else she's gonna go flying out the door first chance she gets. <sighs> I know you, Herman. I know this is what your version of sorry looks like, but our daughter doesn't know the John I know. And if she did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, you're right. What? I love hearing you say that. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> he reached for Eve's thigh but felt only the cold leather of the passenger seat. He opened his eyes. The seat was empty. She was gone. Gone, gone, gone. John didn't have to remind himself that Eve was dead. Her absence was apparent during every minute of the last three years, five months, and 24 days. 
Lately, he only startled at how quickly she would disappear, especially like that, right in the middle of a conversation. The Jeep wipers were squeaking against the dry windshield. It hadn't stopped snowing. It never even began. It always snows when the hallucinations come on. John was batshit all right, but he liked it. At least, he liked it whenever he made an appearance. John cut the engine and walked to his modest castle. A king without a queen, terrified of a princess. When the hallucinations began, John chopped them up to DTs. Delirium tremens, a side effect of getting sober. The DTs can be violent, can make you see and hear things that aren't there. Shadow people, voices whispering, bugs crawling out of the walls. John quit drinking shortly after he died, but ever since his accident, the hallucinations have only grown stronger, more vivid, more frequent. Being inside John's mind was like being inside of a funhouse flickering between dimensions, as if God took up set design and painted a plastic sheet and draped it over his whole world. Sometimes the hallucinations were curious, mind-bending, Sometimes they were terrifying, and sometimes they were Eve. The front porch was all American. A flag on the overhang, dead leaves on red Adirondack chairs, two pumpkins on the steps, because as he was suddenly too old to carve jack-o'-lanterns that year. A seagull sat perched on the railing and didn't fly away when John approached. Eve would have considered that a bad omen. She loved anything metaphysical. Astrology, karma, manifestation, and spirituality. She told him once that birds can sense your soul. If they see you coming and they don't take off, your spirit is all out of whack. John thought it was all woo-woo bullshit until the day she died, when a murder of crows gathered on the sill outside their bedroom window. He slapped the porch railing and the gold took off. He thumbed through the letterbox. In between the junk mail and bills, bank statements he'd never open and restaurant menus he'd never order from, an L.L. Bean catalog addressed to Eve, and voter information for the upcoming election, John found a letter from the Department of Defense, a Dodd-Pop draft letter. It was addressed to Azzy. The envelope was black as midnight, black like the wrong kind of magic, like ravens on power lines and powerless beach towns after summer storms. John was familiar with these foreboding black envelopes. He didn't need to open it to know what was written on the letter inside. He took it around the side of the house, tossed it into a garbage bin, and closed the lid. He lifted the lid, closed it, lifted and retrieved the letter. He would have to give it to Azzy eventually. After all, it's conscription, but not now. Especially not in the morning before school. Especially not this morning. Especially not on an empty stomach. He shoved the envelope down the waistband of his jeans and headed back to the porch. The gull had returned, perched again on the railing. It did not fly away when John approached, nor when he unlocked the door and went inside. The seagull simply stared, and John pretended not to notice. The Herman kitchen was a project in disarray. Power tools, countertops covered in sawdust, cabinet doors off their hinges and lying flat on the dinner table awaiting another coat of stain. On the wall next to the back door hung a calendar, still flipped to August, and showing a picture of a clear summer sky over a candy-striped lighthouse. Behind the calendar was a hole in the drywall. Eventually, John would have to patch it up. There was a TV on the counter near the sink. The morning news was on. An anchor reported an explosion and a monotone voice. John wasn't listening. He didn't care for the news, but talking heads kept him company. 
and so the kitchen TV was always on. He tossed the draft letter in an open cabinet above the stove. It fell behind boxes of baking soda and cake mix, bags of rice and dried beans, salt and seasonings. He grabbed his favorite mug, navy blue ceramic with a faded Patriots logo. A gift from Azzy on some Hallmark-esque Christmas morning. She was six years old, smiling, her teeth crooked and spaced out like an abandoned cemetery. John saved the tag. To Daddy from Azzy and chunky blue crayon on pink construction paper. It's still hanging inside his work locker. Sink, kettle, stovetop, burner, coffee, press, snow falling from the ceiling, collecting in the mug. The sounds of morning at the Herman house, the hot water pipes clanging, the TV news anchor rattling off their misery in that uniform tone that can only be learned at News Anchor University, the tea kettle bubbling on the stove, and the crackle of snowflakes drifting into the burner beneath it. All of it melted away into a blanket of white noise. Under the blanket, a scratching sound, coming from the front door. Slow and steady, in three, four of them, repeating over and over again. He looked down the hall. Outside, night had fallen. The porch light was blue and flickering, like a dime store bulb in a haunted house. There was a silhouette on the door light curtain. Someone was out there. John crept down the hall. The scratching sound grew louder. He lifted the curtain. On the porch, a hunchback thing, wearing a cloak and holding a broom. The porch had been dusted with broken glass. The hunchback thing was sweeping it all up into neat little piles. The thing's hands were gnarled roots vining around the broom handle. The thing's hair, a cold cascade of silver pouring from the hood of its cloak. Then it all fell out. It burst into a plume of feathers and blustered away off into the night by gale so powerful, it rattled the door. The hunchback thing noticed John. Its fingers unfurled the broomstick, and the broom continued to sweep itself. The thing drew back its hood and slowly raised its head. It had an unnatural face, featureless. It had only a single eye, pressed into the space where its mouth should have been, glowing ruby red, flashing hypnotically, like some cyclopean ambulance from hell. John was enamored by it. He couldn't look away. And then, it all ended like the bins. John gasped, spun away, chest heaving, pulse pounding, back pressed against the coat rack. He was relieved, but only briefly, before he found himself face to face with another horror, this one undeniably real, and standing right in front of him. His daughter was at the bottom of the stairs. As he was wearing Eve's old clothes, a motorcycle jacket, beat up, wrinkled, like the skin of a pack-a-day witch. Eve's old Ramones t-shirt, faded pink and full of holes. Her copper hair, her hazel eyes, her freckles, and where they fell on her face. All of it was more her mother than Azzy these days. And for a fleeting second, John thought she was Eve. Do you not hear that? Sorry, you scared the sh heck out of me. You don't hear that? Really? Morning, princess. Azzy stomped to the kitchen and turned off the burner. The high-pitched will of the tea kettle died out. It was so consistent, he forgot it was there, until it was gone. John headed down the hall. He glanced over his shoulder to make sure the porch was empty. It was. Kettle, coffee, fridge, eggs, bacon, pan. John glanced at the oven clock. Bobby's late. As he didn't respond, she was sitting at the kitchen island, playing on her phone. You hungry? Just coffee, thanks. Do you drink coffee now? John poured a second mug and brought it to her. The TV droned on. 
What can you tell us, if anything, about the fire? Well, unfortunately, not much, Tim. Authorities are on the scene, but if they know anything, they're keeping it tight-lipped. Although the official cause of the fire that caused Flora Plant 5 to explode last night has yet to be determined, just moments ago, President Joanna Wolf issued a statement saying, The Flora safety team is the best at what they do. If any one of our plants has so much as a screw loose, they will tighten it. President Wolf is planning to address the nation tonight, and she says, quote, Nothing, and I mean nothing, will interfere with my campaign for re-election Tuesday. Now, back to you. She doesn't need a second term. This is the old white man. Don't tell me you're voting for her. I'm not. Good. Who gives a crap about who the president is? Well, you should, for status. Even if I did, I can vote whoever I please. I'm an adult now. Not till tomorrow, you're not. 18 hardly makes you an adult. It does in the eyes of my government. Unfortunately. He leaned back against the kitchen counter, afraid to look at his daughter's face, nervous that she might deny his eye contact request. Want to do anything special tomorrow night? Nope. You know, normally, teenagers make a big deal out of their 18th birthday. Normal teenagers don't have to share their birthday with their dead mom. You are a normal teenager. Azzy's phone chimed. She smiled and tapped away at it. Chocolate or vanilla? Dear God, please. No baking. It'll be better than last year, I promise. Um, I already have plans. What about tonight, then? Still got those pumpkins. Sure, John. Want to go trick-or-treating, too? Guess I wasn't aware there was an age limit for fun. Well, there is, and I can't tonight anyway, even if I wanted to. You feeling okay? Not that being social is bad. Two nights in a row? It's not even social. It's, um, I, uh, I have to help Bobby write his stupid college essay tonight. I thought those had to be submitted already. Her phone chimed again. It was the latest model Raven. The best phone John's credit could buy. Almost worth every penny to see that cemetery smile of hers come creeping out again. Even if only for a screen. As he loved her Raven. She nourished it, provided everything it asked for, passwords, retina scans, fingerprints, things she wouldn't willingly give away to her physician or the police, and her raven reciprocated by recording every freckle on her face. John didn't understand. He grew up with landlines. Cell phones were like bricks. Text messages cost 50 cents to send and five minutes to type. He witnessed the beginning of the internet and the decline in human interaction. And now in his own kitchen, the latest model Raven was stealing away his little girl. He set his mug on the counter. He watched her stare down at her phone and wondered what, if anything, he could say to make her look up to him again. I hate that darn thing. Takes you out of the room when you're on No it. response. You hear me? John slapped the countertop and yelled. Hey! He snatched her phone and quickly swiped through her apps because Azzy's Raven knew more about her than anyone these days. But John found nothing incriminating. Text from someone named Sam. That was all he had time to see before she wrestled away her phone and sulked off. Back to her stool. Azzy Herman. Champion of the Raven. Phone conqueror. Spoiled little princess of the Herman Kitchen Island. What's your fucking problem, dude? Language. And just so you know, since I pay for it, I have a right to see what's happening on there. In the eyes of the government, anyway. Not in the eyes of me. Why can't you just trust me? I do. Then don't go through my phone. Princess, it's... It's the only privacy I have. You know this, John. Fine. Thank you. But stop calling me John. What did I do to deserve that? You stole my phone. You were ignoring me. Because you were babbling. I just wanted to talk. Forgive me for thinking maybe we could get through a morning together without biting each other's heads off. 
as he placed her phone face down on the counter. Okay, you want to talk? Let's talk. Forget it. Oh, come on, Dad. No. Let's talk, Dad. All right, who's Sam? Azzy's face went blood red. Dunno. Weird, because you're texting with a person named Sam. You must be mistaken. Guy or girl? Next topic. You being safe? Fucking Christ! Language. Boundaries. Fine. Fine. John retreated back to the stove, smirking. He laid a paper towel over a plate and began forking bacon out of the pan. And since we're talking, maybe you can tell me why you're not at work this morning and where you were all night out boozing. Boozing? <laughs> no. No, I was at the hospital. I did the, uh, the sleep study thing you suggested. You actually went? Yeah. How was it? Good. Wicked good. What'd they say? Uh, you know, it's the damnedest thing. Nurse said I didn't toss a turn at all. Said I slipped into the, uh, REM real easily. Whatever that means. I guess it's a good thing. And yeah, I'm feeling real good. Refreshed. What'd they give you? Xanax? Ambient? I don't take drugs, princess. There's a difference between medicine and drugs? Not to me there isn't. I'm sure lots of addicts are insomniacs. There's got to be something they can prescribe you. Yeah. So what did they say about the hallucinations? Nothing. Nothing? Not everyone thinks I'm going crazy. I never called you crazy. I called you batshit. Whatever shit. you said, I heard it. Loud and clear. And I went for help, so... I'm glad you actually heard something I said for once. I hear everything you say. And so do I. He glanced at Azzy and smiled, but she had already reconnected with her phone. She sipped her coffee. She let out a yawn so hard she shook and her eyes watered. Tired? Exhausted. Yeah, you look it. As soon as the words left his mouth, John realized he had just told his teenage daughter that she looked tired. He hoped she hadn't noticed, but of course she had. Cool, John. I just meant cool. you look a little sleepy, so I worry about you. You don't have to. I'm not like you. What's that supposed to mean? Ooh, saved by the fucking bell. Language, goddammit, as language! John threw his fork into the frying pan, splashing bacon grease on the stove, the wall, the counter, himself. He kicked the oven, rattling the burners, and the pans, and the ingredients in the doorless cabinets, too. He was ashamed of his short temper. Each time he lost it, he lost Azzy a little more. She threw her backpack over her shoulder and headed out. I'm glad the sleep study went well. Maybe tonight you can see someone about your anger issues. I'm not angry. John reached for his mug and chugged black coffee as if it were whiskey. Then he headed after her. In the foyer, John pressed himself between the door and jam, blocking her exit. Don't leave like this. Let's talk. I leave when my ride shows up. I don't have a car, remember? I'll drive you. We really are batshit, huh? John became as he's chauffeur after you've died. That much was true. He drove her to and from school every day until one hungover Monday morning when he backed into the side of a school bus. The police were there for hours. The bus had to be towed off campus. She hasn't allowed him near her school since. Listen, princess. I know better than to tell my teenage daughter she looks tired. I may be batshit, but I'm not a fuck freaking moron. It's just that we were talking, and lately, we yell more than we talk. And I wasn't thinking. I'm just tired, all right? I haven't slept in days, and I'm goddamn starving. What I'm trying to say is... I'm just, uh... Language. John hung his head and stared down at his mug, his ashamed reflection bobbing up and down in the coffee. He was toast, and he knew it. Was there even a sleep study? Of course there was. I went. I'm trying. Please believe me. That's just it. I can't. 
As he pushed past him, through the door, off the porch, toward the street, and into Bobby's car. They drove off, tires pounding down the asphalt until they were out of earshot. John closed the door and sat on the hallway stairs, cradling his favorite mug. Never bullshit a bullshitter. And she, my friend, can bullshit amongst the matadors. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You should know that. Get your goddamn head in the fucking game. The smell of burning wafted into the foyer. The smoke alarm started blaring. Startled, John jumped to his feet. He ripped the smoke detector from the ceiling, stomped it with his heel, and ran down the hall. The kitchen was on fire. The bacon plate had jumped when he kicked the oven. A corner of the greasy paper towel caught. Now it was all flames, puffing like a chimney. Stovetop inferno. The sawdust covering the countertops didn't help slow things down. There was no time to think. John clipped off the burner and flung the plate to the floor. He reached over the stove through the smoke, blindly batting at the open cabinet. Ingredients fell out. Spice shakers, cake mix, instant rice, box of baking soda, the can of Morton salt he was looking for. He flipped open the pour spout and doused it all, suffocating the flames. Then, he threw the empty container in the sink. Most of it had melted into a mountain of burned food and blackened bric-a-brac. Still, some things were salvageable. Four glass spice jars, two hot sauce bottles, a canister of breadcrumbs that had cleared the flames and rolled all the way to the back door. John put it all away. The black envelope was sticking out of the cabinet. He wished it had burned too. But even if it had, another would come and another. The government is persistent, as he has been selected. She's a daughter now, just like Eve. John held the envelope over a burner and clicked it on. Flames climbed from corner to corner, devouring the draft letter, curling it to ash and ember. He dropped it into the sink where it wheezed to death under the faucet. He blinked, and the envelope was white. The color of honesty. The color of God's palm. The color of cemetery smiles and the crooked mouths of children. John fished it out the sink, shook off the water, tore off what remained of the envelope and examined it. As he hadn't been drafted, she had been accepted to school. NYU. New York City. Land of the Yankees. Just far enough away to break his heart. He leaned over the sink feeling nauseous and weak, staring at the empty Morton container lying among the dirty dishes. The cartoon girl on the label looked like Azzy. Salt in the wounds. When it rains, it pours. He plucked the container from the sink and threw it in the trash. He tossed in Azzy's acceptance letter. Still white, not black, never was. How could he give it to her in this condition? How would he explain the scorched paper? The running ink. The kitchen TV was playing a Carewell wireless commercial. A soft voiceover relaying the importance of sticking together. Connectivity. Family plans. The latest model Raven. Who cares about you, John? Who cares about you, John Herman? You look like shit, John. You should get some sleep, John. You must be exhausted, John. You must be exhausted. You must be exhausted. You must be exhausted. You must be exhausted, John. You must be exhausted. John kicked the garbage can. He punched the wall by the back door. A second hole in the drywall below the lighthouse calendar. Then, the sweeping sound returned. John looked down the hall. The hunchback thing was pressing its unnatural face against the door. The light from its eyes shining through the doorlight curtain, bathing the foyer in crimson light. Its broom swept the porch on its own accord. John stormed down the hall and ripped the door open. Get the fuck out of here! The sky was wrinkled linen, the color of morning, and the sun was trying its best to shine. 
The porch was the same as earlier. Empty. All-American. New England. Two seagulls perched on the banister. Two Adirondack chairs in which no one sits anymore. And two pumpkins on the steps. Because Azzy was suddenly too old to carve jack-o'-lanterns that year. Cyrus was created, written, and produced by Travis Alexander. The voice of Azzy Herman and Eve Herman is Katie Leeds. The voice of John Herman is Alex Korea. Original music by Travis Alexander. No artificial intelligence was used in the making of this story. Novel pre-orders coming soon. Learn more at thesiren.ai. And thank you for listening.